Would you please take your Bibles and open them to the first letter of Paul to Corinthians chapter 10. You'll find that on page 1137, I believe, 1137 of your pew Bible, if you're using that this morning. And as I often say, it is um, strongly encouraged that you have a copy of God's word open before you as we give our attention to the reading and the preaching of his word. Uh, For many of the years that I've served uh, here, first at Village and now at Grace, I have often uh, done a brief series, usually just the month of January at the beginning of each year, uh, tending to be more topical in nature with an aim to encourage us uh, in various ways to seek Christ at the beginning of a new year. And I wanted to do that again uh, this year. Since this year marks my 21st year, of serving here and feeling somewhat nostalgic, I decided that I would do what I would do is to go back in time, and I can do that because I keep every sermon I preached, and choose three sermons that I preached as I began the ministry the Lord gave me here in that very first year, which was 2001. Now, I assure you, I'm not simply going back and preaching the same sermon. That would be lazy. But I am revisiting the same texts. And those are texts that I chose in those early days as a way to remember myself and to help God's people to remember that no matter how how much time passes, God's word remains true and faithful. When a man begins his ministry that the Lord has given to him in any place, uh, he is usually, and and this bears out to be true in many conversations I've had with other ministers, he's usually very intentional at the outset of that ministry to set down the truths of God's word that are central to how he will approach his ministry and the truths that will guide him and direct him in however many years he may spend in that place. And that was no less true for me in the early days of 2001. January 7th, 2001 was the very first Sunday that I preached at Village PCA as their new pastor. I arrived here and Uh, Ruth and I were talking about this a while ago. It was January 4th. I arrived here. It was snowy. As I remember, I was towing my car behind the truck I was driving, and I had to make it across the Burlington-Bristol Bridge, which I had never experienced before, and didn't think I was going to make it because it's such a narrow old bridge. But I did. Arrived at the Rock Hill home while snow was still falling Unpacked, And three days later, we gathered at worship in Village, then Providence Chapel. We were uh, obviously renting it. And I began with a sermon based on the text that we're going to look at this morning. My purpose then, as it is now, was to set before God's people the glory and wonder of our communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly as we come this morning, as we did then in that first Sunday, to the Lord's table, where we do fellowship and commune with Christ and where we do enjoy the benefits of his work that he has accomplished on our behalf. And so that text then and the text this morning is 1 Corinthians 10. I'll read verse 1 through 21. We'll ask that you will stand for the reading of God's word. It's not a 
terribly long passage, but it is very important as we seek to understand this table. 1 Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 1, this is God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Father, bless your word to us now, we pray. We are a people seated before your presence, anxious to hear from you. And so speak to us by your spirit. Impress upon us these truths spoken long ago. But your word stands forever, and so it is true today as it was then. Bless it, we pray, to the strength and encouragement of our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. The verses read for the Old Testament reading, of course, were intentional. They really parallel, I think, the passage that we've just read from chapter 9 of Proverbs. It's a wonderful picture. It is a contrast between wisdom and folly, both imagined and pictured in chapter 9 as women who 
send forth their calls to the simple who walk by. And in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, we have this description of wisdom. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent her young women out to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, come and eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I have mixed. Both wisdom and folly in chapter 9 of Proverbs are pictured as presenting their feasts, but they are very different feasts, aren't they? Wisdom prepares all things while folly simply sits and invites and prepares nothing. What she does offer are the things that are stolen and illicit. Wisdom provides the choicest of food and wine while folly delights again in that which is stolen. Wisdom sends her maids into all the land to invite the simple, and she sends them herself while folly simply calls to those who happen to walk by her path that they might come in. Wisdom promises great reward, while the end of folly, we're told, is death and the grave itself. The whole context of the book of Proverbs tells us that it is a foolish picture indeed, to think and imagine that we could feast at both the table of wisdom and the table of folly, because they're very different, you see, and opposed to one another. Their ends are different, their foods are different, their fruits are different. To think that one could feast at both of them, feasting meaning that one enters and sits down at the table to eat of all its bounty, is not a picture given by the writer of Proverbs. And so as John Owen, in the wonderful work Uh, our communion with Christ, or our communion with God. Owen says this about this very passage in Proverbs. He says, The Lord Jesus, the eternal wisdom of the Father, who makes him wisdom to us, sets up a spiritual house in which he makes provision for the entertainment of those guests whom he so freely invites. His church is the house which he has built on a perfect number of pillars so that it might be stable, resting on a good foundation. His slain beasts and mixed wine with which his table is spread are those spiritual fat things of the gospel, which he has so graciously prepared for those that come in answer to his invitation. Surely, Owen then says, to eat of this bread here, And to drink of this wine is to hold fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. And that is exactly what Paul is saying and speaking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Like the writer of Proverbs, Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 10, it is impossible for you to come to the table of idols and offer in that religious worship your offerings to idols. And imagine you can come at the same time to the table of our Lord where you enjoy fellowship with Christ. In the one, it's fellowship, he says, with demons. That surprises us as we read this passage. We're fellowshipping with demons when we're at the table of idols, but we're fellowshipping with Christ himself at the Lord's table, which is what Paul has in view here in this passage and what Owen is speaking about 
as to the true meaning of Proverbs chapter 9. It's a picture of our communion and fellowship with Jesus Christ himself, who is wisdom from God. Now, chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians highlights uh, some of the errors that the Corinthian church struggled with. We know from our study in years past of this book that the troubles were many. Our purpose this morning is really to focus on verses 14 through 22, which does focus our attention upon the Lord's Supper. But I want to look at the beginning as well, because I think it's instructive. It's not the most common passage, of course, in the book of 1 Corinthians about the Lord's Supper. That would be chapter 11, where we're told of the words of institution that we'll read later as we come to the table. But it does contain some very important principles that we need to see and be reminded of this morning. And so I think there are two sections here that we'll look at, verses 1 through 13 and then verses 14 through 22. In verses 1 through 13, this section builds on what Paul has been saying in chapter 9 about how we are not, how we are to run this race that is set before us. He begins this chapter, as you see in verse 1, I do not want you to be unaware or to be ignorant that our fathers were all under the cloud. Now, this is important, what Paul is saying here. The essence of what he is saying here in these verses, especially verses 1 through 6, is that don't be ignorant, brethren. Everyone who claims to be in Christ is not in Christ. All of those who might profess outwardly that they are followers of Jesus are not necessarily true followers of Jesus. And he uses some wonderful imagery from the Old Testament he uses phrases like all who were passed through the sea were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. They all participated outwardly of the ministry of the old covenant and the promises that God had given to his people. There was no distinction or difference among them with respect to their actions and their involvement and their fellowship or participation in these things. But verse 5 gives us the key that Paul is focusing on here. Nevertheless, with most of them... The majority of them, as Hebrew goes on to say, the book of Hebrews, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. They were unfaithful. They stand as a generation, the bulk of which was unfaithful to God. And yet they all outwardly participated, shared in the external signs of the old covenant. That's the point that Paul is making. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with them. It's what John would say later in his first epistle as he writes of those who have left them and evidenced by their leaving that they were never actually part of them. It's what Jesus would say in several places where he talks about the kingdom of God being like a gathering of people who are tares and wheat together. Remember, he told his disciples, don't root up the tares and get rid of them. The angels will do that upon their return, upon the return of the sun. Leave them grow up together side by side. Not everyone who claims to be Christ's is actually his. He then gives them some further 
examples, really warnings in verses 6 through 13 as we move our way quickly through this portion of 1 Corinthians 10. He says, why did these things happen? Why did they take place? Ultimately, they took place that they might be recorded and written down for our sake. He literally says that they were written down as examples for us that we might avoid their example and that we might not set our hearts on things that are evil and opposed to God. You notice the phrase in verses 6 through 13 that appears over and over again, as some of them were, as some of them did, as some of them did, as some of them did. Avoid the example, he says. Avoid what they did. Be warned that you ought not to walk in the path that they walked, for you will suffer the same consequence. That leads to verse 12, where he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't be careless, he says, in your faith. Now, all of this is leading up to a point, isn't it? The point will be this idea of fellowshipping with demons at the table of idolaters. And he says, don't fall into that which they fell into. That's what they were guilty of, idolatry, worship of other gods. And he says, don't fall into that trap. That's why the example is here. He warns them to take heed, to be careful, to be diligent in all that they do, to be careful not to assume that you stand, lest in a moment you fall because of your carelessness in the things of your spiritual life. That's the point he's making. Now, verse 13, we know it by heart. Many of us have memorized verse 13. It's a great verse. It's a comforting verse. However, as you see, if you have the uh, Bible that is the Reformation Study Bible with its notes, you'll see a wonderful note at the bottom, which reflects the commentary that many hold, old and new commentators alike, that this verse is not merely a verse of comfort or encouragement. It's also a rebuke of the Corinthians. It comes at the end of this whole section. And really the rebuke is this, that there is no temptation that is too great that God cannot provide and in fact has not already provided a way of escape. So that the truth of the New Testament is that sin no longer has rule and reign over us as believers. It's a verse that points people, as you read it carefully, to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and calls the believer to consider himself or herself dead to sin because of the work of Christ. For instance, Romans chapter 6. And I love the note in the new or, or this uh, study Bible. It says that sin is never a necessity for a believer. That's the rebuke. That for the believer who has been made new in Jesus Christ, sin is never any longer a necessity. Apart from Christ, all we do is sin. Never doing good and honoring God. But in Christ, sin now no longer is a necessity. It's not something we're guaranteed to walk in. We have a new life in Jesus. So verse 13 is really a call, a rebuke to turn away from the folly of falling back into our old ways and to press on in the newness of life that is ours in Jesus Christ. Now, all of this, this whole first 13 verses leads 
to what Paul says in verse 14 through 22. Therefore, because of all of this, because of everything I've just said, flee then from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. Now, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's already begun in chapter 8 a discussion of a very important issue that was happening in the church. And that is, what are people to do with meat offered to idols? How are they to sort of look at that? Paul makes many arguments in chapters 8 and following. He makes some other arguments after these verses in verse 23 and following. But he's talking about the nature of idolatry, food offered to idols. And the issue is not whether a man can eat meat sacrificed to idols. For Paul says an idol is nothing and the meat is nothing. He says, don't strain your conscience over it, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So Paul has a view about this meat that's offered to idols. He'll he'll speak more of that in the coming verses. But his issue here is not the meat offered to idols that we may eat at separate times. It's the participation. The word used here several times in these verses is the very familiar Greek word koinonia. It's the word that we get our term fellowship from or communion from. It is that intimate involvement and participation with either Christ or demons. This is about real communion, about real fellowship. The individual believer's communion with Christ, the corporate body of believers and their communion in Christ with one another. That is why, frankly, as we come to the table, we call men and women to examine themselves with respect to their own relationship with Jesus Christ and with one another in the body of Christ. That's why it's fitting if there be brothers and sisters at odds with one another as we come to the table, that they be reconciled before they come to the table as much as God would allow, at least reconciled in their hearts, if not genuinely in their lives. It's why we call men and women to examine themselves with respect to their own faith. Because what takes place here, according to the Apostle Paul, is a real communion and fellowship with the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are coming into his presence by the Spirit. We are being joined to him, enjoying the benefits of our union with Jesus Christ. And so a man or a woman ought to come carefully to this table, examining himself or herself to see that they be indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the arguments he makes in these opening verses of 14 through 22. He says the cup of blessing, verse 15 or verse 16, that we bless this cup that was set before us. Is it not a communion fellowship in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or fellowship in the body of Christ? And because there is one bread from which we take together, aren't we all then one body because of this one bread? He then reminds us in the verses that follow of the ongoing example of the Israelites of old. 
using them as an ongoing example for the people today. He talks about their participation in the sacrifices of the altar. Remember, some of the sacrifices that they would bring, a portion would be given back to them to eat as a family and to share. It was their participation in the sacrifice of the animal, which prefigured the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were literally participating in the sacrifice with the priest. That's the example he brings to mind to show that this is what's happening every time we come to this table. But here's the problem. Some in Corinth were participating, entering into the meals of these idolaters, these worshipers of demons They didn't think that way. They didn't think it was a bad thing. Maybe they thought it was a great way to get to know their neighbors and to be a witness to them. But Paul is saying there's something very wrong here that's taking place. It's not merely the eating of meat offered to idols, which can be done as you buy the meat from the market after it was brought from these idol places of worship. But rather, it's a participation, a sitting down with a fellowship, a sharing in the life of those who are participating in this idolatrous worship. He says, of course, in verses uh, in Second Corinthians, the New Testament passage read a parallel passage. Why he says what he says, do not be unequally yoked, he says, with unbelievers For what partnership, what fellowship, what communion has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan himself? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. You see, you see what he's saying here in these verses It is so central and important to our understanding of what takes place here at this table. Both of these meals represent a fellowship, a communion, a joining and participation, a becoming one with either Christ or demons. Now that again must have struck the Corinthians as a stunning picture and statement Perhaps the first part, that we commune in Christ, would have been more easily understood. But the fact that they were actually communing with demons as they participated in these idolatrous meals, it would have struck them as strange. But Paul's point is sound. What we do here at the table is real. That we are really communing with and fellowshipping with Christ who is in heaven That by his spirit, as we so often say, we are lifted up into his very presence. He seated before us by faith and we receiving as we do from the minister's hands, from the elder's hands. We are receiving from Christ's own hands the benefits of his work for us. The same is true, Paul says, on the other side. That those who gather in a religious ceremony at the table of idols, that there is a fellowship, a communion, and a participation with demons. It is wisdom and folly reintroduced in chapter 10. It's the picture that Owen rightly notes 
in Proverbs chapter 9 that's coming into focus here as well. It's a reminder that in the Bible, there really are only two paths, not several paths, but just simply two. If we are in Christ, we are united with Christ, and our fellowship and communion is with Jesus Christ, the eternal, everlasting Son of the living God. That fellowship, that participation, that union with Christ is what we live out as we come to this table, what we experience. But if we are not in Christ, our communion, our fellowship is with demons. It's a, it's a scary thought for people today who dismiss these ideas out of hand. There's no such thing. But in the Bible, there is. It's just one of two things. We are either under the rule of Satan and in participation and fellowship with him, or we are brought by the grace of God into fellowship and communion and union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the picture he presents to us of this table, the warning that he gives to the Corinthians and to us here. It's why when I came in 2001, I wanted to set from the very beginning a very clear picture of what our communion and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ is as we come together as one body before him at this table. That leads me then to apply this in several ways. First, let me speak to those this morning who may not be Christians or followers of the Lord Jesus Christ here. If you are not a Christian, these words are a stark picture of your condition. You are not a worshiper of the one true and living God, but you are because you were made to worship. You are a worshiper of idols Idols of your own making, idols of our own minds, idols that we follow, idols that we serve. We learned a lot about that in our study of Isaiah. There are only two paths, two choices, two who invite to the feast. If you are a worshiper of idols, and if you are not in Christ, you are, then you have fellowship, Paul says, with demons. That doesn't mean you have to actually go to a temple where demons are worshipped and sit and eat a meal in order to have this be true. It is true by its very nature. We are in fellowship with demons, with Satan himself, under his rule and authority, even as the Bible says in so many places, if we are outside of Christ. And that fellowship, that feast is filled only with the dead, only filled with those who go down to the grave in the language of Proverbs 9. Such is the condition of your soul outside of Christ, whom the Bible says is life itself. Ephesians 2 tells us that all men are by nature dead in their trespasses and sins, and all are by nature objects of, objects of God's wrath. This is so much so that by nature there is no hope that is in ourselves, we are utterly hopeless, we are helpless, nothing that a dead man or a dead woman can do for themselves. Not only is this so, but also that man by nature enjoys the company of demons. He delights in wickedness and left to himself, would not only continue to delight in it, but it would encourage others to do it as well. Happy is the man or woman in the state of their sin, but its happiness is short-lived and it is not true happiness. 
It is veiled happiness. It is the secret delights of stolen fruit, as Proverbs 9 tells us. But thanks be to God that that is not the end of the story. Ephesians 2 continues, as you know, for God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. There is hope, and that hope is found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, not in any idol that the world or our own hearts may put forward. He alone is the light of life, and he is held out in the gospel, so much so that the scriptures say, believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. If you're not a Christian this morning, your only duty is to come in faith to him, to believe the gospel and to be saved. That is not only your duty, but it is your only hope. But I want to speak a word of application as well to those who are here this morning who are in Christ by faith. In 2001, I used the very same points of application, so I am repeating this, but building on them. And I wanted people then to know what I want you to know now. And that is how important it is to know both yourselves and the God who has called you in grace. And so first, know yourself. Know yourself. Paul is writing to believers in Corinth who are struggling. There are many errors. And for these true believers who are actually participating in these things, this serves as a warning and a rebuke. But it's written to believers. Believers who struggle greatly with things that you and I are often shocked by as we read these books, First and Second Corinthians. But here's the point. You and I are ever prone to wander back to what was natural to us before Christ. Back to the idols of our lives, the idols that still wage war against our souls. Even as Israel longed for Egypt in the desert, so the believer is ever tempted to long for the Egypt of our former lives. We are foolish if we believe that we are free from that temptation. And so be ever vigilant to guard your hearts and your minds in him. Be ever feeding at the feast that he has prepared for you so that you might remember the sweetness of all his benefits and his grace. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That ought to be the sense and the sensibility of our hearts. As one writer so powerfully wrote with respect to knowing ourselves, when the heart has said to the Lord, thou art my portion, it can say to the world in all of its lusts, stand aside. I have nothing to do with you. Rest in the grace of God that is in Christ and know yourself. Secondly, Know his word. Know his word. As we begin a new year, we often encourage one another, begin again to read God's word. From beginning to end, read his word daily. Read his word and find your comfort and strength in what his word tells you. 
The Bible tells us in every place of the riches and beauty of the banquet that is prepared for us by Christ. It lays out as we read it every moment as we read it. It lays out the table for us filled with its choicest foods. This is found and seen in the living word, Jesus, and the written word, the Bible. Feed upon it often. Know it well. Study its promises and rest in them. For God delights to give his people rest in the promises that he has already given to us in Christ. For this word is your food, telling you not only of all the choicest things that you have been prepared for you, but also of the character of the God who has called you. Know it well, and you will know your God. And that leads me to the third point. If we know his word, we will know our God. What kind of God is it that has called us into fellowship with himself in Christ? What kind of God does the Bible speak about? It speaks beautifully in so many places of his faithfulness, kindness, his mercy, his love to sinners like you and like me. That picture ought to consume your minds and your hearts as you live your lives this year. Probably one of the most beautiful examples we have in the whole of the Bible is in the example of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. You will remember Hosea's prophecy primarily has to do with God's relationship to his people. He called a man to live out in his own life the realities of God's relationship with Israel. They chased after other gods. They delighted in the feasts of idols. In chapter 2, he speaks in vivid language of Gomer's relationship with her husband, Hosea, that God's people had given credit to these idols for the things that God himself had provided. Remember how it speaks? For their mother has played the whore. She, has, she who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. But you see, it was God alone who gave her these things. Hosea later writes, And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain and the wine and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold which they used for Baal. Therefore, God will judge his people and take away the things which he had given to them. He will punish them for going after other lovers and rejecting the love of the one true God. But, and this is the wonderful and beautiful, overwhelmingly beautiful picture of Hosea, but he will not abandon them. He will not allow them to continually chase after other gods, for he is a jealous God for his people this is how the book of Hosea records what God will do. It's what Paul says at the very end of this section. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Remember these words from Hosea. Therefore, he says, behold, I will allure her and I will bring her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, 
and they shall be remembered by name no more. He will go on to speak of the renewal of the covenant of his love for them. He will say, I have mercy on those whom I have not had mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. What an incredible picture. And all of it is here before you this morning at the table of our Lord, where you and I will enjoy fellowship with Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, where we will find together and enjoy together the delights of his grace to us in Christ. Christian, know yourself. Know yourself, for you are ever prone to wander far from him and to seek the pleasure of idols which are nothing. Know his word, which tells of his jealousy for his own and his holy character, which does not change. And know your God, the God of mercy and abundant grace, who woos you by his love, who speaks comfort to your souls in Christ, who betroths you to himself forever in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy and in faithfulness. And by God's mercy, may he cause us to say, as Charles Wesley did in that great hymn that we'll sing after the Lord's Supper, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me to thy bosom fly while the nearer waters roll, while the tempest still is nigh. Hide me, O my Savior, hide till the storms of life is past. Safe into the haven guide, O receive my soul at last. You know what I love about revisiting old sermons that I first preached when I began the ministry the Lord had given to me at Village back in 2001? I love the fact that God's word doesn't change. We change, but his word never changes. It endures forever. Which means that in 20 years, by the grace of God, Pastor Fisher will be standing here teaching and reminding you of these very same truths. And perhaps in 30 years, Pastor Nathaniel Costa, should the Lord be pleased to call him to pastoral ministry, will be standing here or somewhere else, reminding God's people of these same truths and calling those who do not know Christ to a table fully prepared and spread with the choicest of foods, calling them to Christ and to communion and fellowship with him. And should the Lord tarry 500 years from now, some nameless yet to be chosen and called man will stand in this pulpit or some other pulpit, and he'll say the same things because this is the truth of God and it never changes. Have you heard his call, sinner? Have you come to him and found in him all that you could ever, ever desire? And here is a table for you, set by the Lord himself, that is food for your soul. Here you and I will commune with Jesus by faith, and we will be fed to satisfaction. Let us pray. How rich and how delightful our fellowship is with you, our God. As you have set before us in your word the truths that pierce our hearts and minds and that remind us of the reality of our fellowship with the living God and of the choicest treasures that are ours through Christ. Keep us far from the table of idols. 
far from the table spread by folly who invites us to come and enjoy the secret pleasures of stolen things. Instead, may we always find our delight in Christ, who is wisdom from God, who has set before us such a table filled with such choicest of the treasures of his grace, that all who come are truly satisfied. May we delight always in him now and forever, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.